Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. This is Af Malhotra on Straight Talk with Af. I have two superb guests on my show, and I somehow convinced them to come onto my show because they wrote this book. Um, let me read it for you. The Go-To-Market Handbook for B2B Sales Leaders, uh, with a subtitle essentially, um, or subheading should I say, how to stack the odds in your favor when scaling your SaaS business. I wish I had read this book when I was building my SaaS business. Um, I would have made uh, some smart decisions and avoided some landmines and some trap doors. Hey ho, mm -hmm. I have two brilliant people with me, uh, Richard Blundell and Chris Totman. Now, uh, before I go into introducing my two guests and I'm going to hand the baton over to them, I just want to share this with you, with my with my guests and with my uh, listeners. Building a company, as an entrepreneur, I speak um, you know, from real life, lived experience here. Building a company and being an entrepreneur is without doubt the hardest thing you will ever do. It is definitely not for the faint hearted. <clears throat> Over 90% will not succeed will probably fail, come out and try again. Some will try again. Some will go and get another corporate gig and be dissatisfied and contribute to the Gallup numbers. Others will feel happy that they went off and got another job. It is painful. It is rough. It is hard. And you need all the help you can get, all the help you can get. You read all the books, watch all the YouTube videos, hang out with the best mentors, make your VCs your best friends, and so on and so forth. So the two people here today, one who has been researching this domain, has a growth consultancy in this space, uh, who's been studying the psychology of the founder, the decisions of the founder, what works and what doesn't work over 25 years, Richard. Um, mm -hmm. And of course, Chris, who's been taking the big, you know, packs of cash, the, the bags of cash and throwing them to founders like me in a sensible way and giving us the, the lifeline to help us grow our businesses. And, you know, in, in his venture, Chris, in, in past life, um, was part of Message Labs, as in he, I, I believe he invested in the company and it was worth 700 million at one point and, and so on and so forth. So established operators, but two different dimensions coming together. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Richard to the show and Chris. How are you both? And thank you for coming on my show. I really do appreciate it. Yeah, really yeah. good. Uh, really good. Lovely to be here. I'm um, actually, we were both at Message Labs. Um, we've worked together for nearly 25 years. And still work together today. Actually, um, Chris is very closely aligned to our our, um, our consultancy, um, and indeed, all three authors have known each other since I'm going to say early '90s, Chris, probably. So nearly 30 years. Exactly. Um, and we've worked together on and off for pretty much all of that time. Um, so yeah, the 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 wisdom in the book is um, from all three of us. It's from 30 years of of being founders, starting up scaling up, fucking up, exiting, all of the above. And we learned as much from the ones that went wrong as the ones that went right. Um, in fact, we learned more uh, probably from the ones that went wrong. Um, and I can't agree with you more about, I mean, the first line of the book is, you know, this is a this is a book written for people we regard as heroes, which is, which is founders, because the resilience required to be a founder in the SaaS technology space, particularly at the moment, um, is unbelievable. And we looked around the marketplace and thought, who's written a book that can help these guys out? Who can, sitting on a plane or on a train, you know, write down 10 workbooks systematically that might give some inspiration, some ideas, some concepts about how to stack the odds in your favor. So yeah, founders are heroes of ours. And, and that's, you know, we've dedicated the whole book to them. 
Yeah, fact, it's great. Yeah, it's great to be on the show. I love some of your themes. I think, um, you know, I'm, uh, you know, well known for, for a number of things. I'm quite plural. I'm one of those annoying people that spins up a lot of things uh, simultaneously at the same time. And, uh, and um, so some of your themes are great, you know, particularly around digitalization, diversity and inclusion, um, we met, of course, through the brand Included.vc, which is an organization that I founded many years ago with Steve Millard at Notion and uh, Nikita Thakra, who's just like an absolute rock star. And uh, yeah, Richard Paul and I, we were actually each other's first ever co-founders back in 95. And so, as Richard said, we've worked together uh, pretty consistently for the since 95. And then there was this gap. And... Um, you know, it's a classic sort of founder story, really, where, you know, they're, the guys are getting together, having a beer and they're like, you know, let's get the band back together again. And, you know, is there a way that we can reform? And what was interesting is that, you know, my day job is obviously building Notion, the BC firm. Right. And, and, and we're effectively unicorn hunting all of the time. That's, you know, that's what because of the size of our fund, that's what drives our economics. And um, but all day long as a founder that's institutionally investing, I'm I'm meeting all these like remarkable people and and they're, so, they're noodling around solving these uh, really, really interesting problems for the world, particularly my world is a B2B world. Um, but, you know, there's common themes coming up that like, you know, the TAM's too small or they're bouncing off VCs as, as founders do, getting lots and lots of no's in the wilderness of uh, trying to figure out kind of how to position the investment proposition to VCs. And, you know, we're kind of saying, look, this, this, there's just hundreds and hundreds of people that are trying to address business problems that, that VCs aren't built to solve or invest in those companies. And so um, Venture was formed a company, you know, around the idea of uh, three great um, found, co-founders that had um, had this small gap in their career and then when we were doing that it was like you, we keep providing the same advice over and over again is there got to be a bigger better way to scale this and yeah. so yeah Richard is the crazy guy that said right I'm going to put switch my phone off and I'm going to start writing all this down and it was easy for me in many regards because it's like oh yeah yeah Richard you go do that that would be great expecting their it did not happen. And sure enough, a few weeks later, he came back with the introduction and chapter one. My first thought process is when I open this up, you know, I'm going to hate it. You know, it's going to be, you know, like massive amounts of iteration. And I got quite emotional. It was like, oh, my God, he, he's really cut through the noise. Yeah. And um, it, I was thinking about some of the companies that I was working with and thinking about how I could apply just the first couple of chapters. And uh, and that's how the book started. I think that was in March. And, um, you know, we got into heavy edits in the summer and uh, and uh, the book went live in uh, in September. So, um, yeah, it's just a it's just a real privilege to be able to get it all down on paper, mm. get it into a format that's very easily distributable. As Richard says, that people can use it as a workbook when they're noodling around with their particular problem, market problem, technology problem. And um, you know, help them stack the odds a little bit more in their favor. So you know, it's been a been, been a brilliant, brilliant exercise. Yeah, yeah, awesome. And I think, and we'll get into the book. And I think it's amazing. One of the things I like about what you just shared is that you've been together, you've worked together in the past. And I yeah. do think, I, I think that sort of comes out in the book. I didn't know that, by the way, uh, prior to this mm. as well. Um, and it does come out because when you have psych a psychological fit and you have some synergy there and you have connectedness. 
or you've done fun things together or shitty things together in the past and been through the ups and downs, as you said, Richard. Mm. And now you're in two different walks of life, but mm. you're still connected. That history, mm. like you have with your mates, like your friends, that history is the foundation block of mm. the next thing you do. Even if you decide to build a company together at some point, you, you carry that with you. And of course, one of the things I found, which kudos to you, and glad you wrote, you started typing because that's the damn thing, right? I mean, it's like, yeah. you've got to start spilling it out. And um, I think it's so important, years and years of experience, of wisdom, of know-how, of failure. I mean, mm. a failure of, of mm. knowing how not to do it. Mm. I think that's way more important sometimes than absolutely nailed it, you know, got it right mm. first time. Mm. This sort of, you know, get it, you know, that, mindset, essentially. Yeah. Oh, and, and that's quite boring, isn't it? I mean, if you, you know, if you want to read a book on how, you know, yeah. someone you know, scaled a business and everything was great. And, you know, it's a bit like someone saying, oh, yeah, I ran up Mount Everest yesterday. Yeah. And then I ran back down again. It's like, oh, great. You know, and it's like, I, I, I don't really want to hear that. I want to hear more about, and you can only write a book like this if you've blown a marketing budget or you've blown <laughs> a sales budget. Or you did what we did, and that's where the book starts, as you know, in the, first, in the very first workbook, about how we, you know, we had a great idea. Um, well, Chris and Paul, you know, really drove it in the early days. Um, you know, our first staff business, you know, we came from a different background to software, but we got into it very, very quickly. Um, and we went out and we raised a load of money off uh, angels and VCs. Uh, and for the first nine months, couldn't work out why such brilliant, <laughs> in our own heads, salespeople were you know were failing to hit yeah. the number that we'd set ourselves and the goal we'd set it wasn't that everybody would say no but we just we weren't getting the traction at all mm. and it was a pure miracle it really was i mean we might have got there eventually but it was a pure miracle that one of our customers at the volkswagen groups one of the first businesses to pick it up turned around and said why have you always been selling your software the wrong way around and it was an extraordinary comment from a customer really and it's like well, what do you mean he said well the bit that you sold me is all the sort of flashy bit on the front and the staff like it and it's very pretty and it's very popular with the staff. He said, but that's kind of like nice to have. He said, the bit, you, the little widget on the back, that's tiny little widget on the back that allows you to add joiners, take out levers, do pay rises, do flex benefits, you know, change benefits. For but that is genius. He said, what used to take three people three days now takes one person a third of a day. And it was like, literally, talk about the mic drop moment. It was like, geez, we've been selling this. We've been selling benefits visibility, which is what our, our platform mm. did, when all along what we needed to be selling was benefits administration. And we'd done no testing. We we thought we knew better than the market. We thought we saw a gap. We just went charging over the hill. We know better than our customers. Well, aren't we mm. clever? And it was a spectacular and almost fatal mistake for the business. And had we not pivoted literally overnight and relaunched the next day as a benefits administration platform with the little visibility bit the original cell as as a freebie as a giveaway mm -hmm. we would have we'd have gone right and, and and so we learned we had those sleepless nights that bottomless you know bottom of the stomach sickness a feeling of missing target going to board meeting over and over again you know oh yeah we missed it again and maybe it's not going to resonate and couldn't figure out why and, and the mm -hmm. answer was you know, build a build build a value prop, build a visual pain statement, and then go and test that that thesis is correct with the customers you intend to sell it to before you write a line of code. Almost because mm -hmm. why are you going to spend all the money building a product correct. and building correct. marketing if if your thesis that you believe to be correct doesn't solve visceral pain? Not nice to have. They they have to have your product, and they've seen the pain, they've seen the challenge, they've seen the solution. 
and they've gone yes please that's exactly what i need if you get that verification go forward and if you don't stop wait and adjust and and move so mm-hmm. you know it, it, as i said you know earlier on that, you know what we did in this book was was there's all, an awful lot of books out there that have one great idea and 300 pages of words about one great idea. And after chapter one, you kind of got it. And then chapters mm. two, three, four, five, we wanted to cover a lot of areas in a in a relatively thin way to cover more ground. But the starting point is, for God's sake, we're, why is software the only industry in the world that doesn't test its products before it goes to market? Yeah. Could you imagine, you imagine pharmaceutical doing that? You know, yeah. Um, so, yeah, that, that, that's really where we started. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. I want to come to Chris and I want to come back to Richard. I had a question yeah. actually related to this. So, so Chris, when, when you started rising, um, I guess you spent, you said, was it the mid from the mid nineties? When did you start notion? When did you get into notion? Well, there's a, I suppose that's a notion. Starting notion is an interesting point in, in, in case, because, you know, there's a number of different ways to get into venture capital. You yeah. can go the sort of, there's a corporate route. There's a large firm that's been around for many years and you join yeah. that. And you work up just like a corporate job, you know, um, or, you know, you have um, you build a technology business, you sell it and then you use that money uh, to build your first fund, which is how we did it. So we sold Message Labs and we announced Notion the next day, you know, or you have like a hustle or a side hustle. You're a Harry, Harry Stebbings. Right. And so you build a huge amount of uh, connectivity and information and deal flow and you get propri- pri- proprietary access to people and information. So uh, there's there's. There's that way. So for us, we, you know, we built, we built message labs, which if you look at the bottom of your email, it will say scan by. Mm-hmm. And so in the mid nineties, you know, the world started connected to the internet. And at that point people became vulnerable to bad actors, remote bad actors that, you know, they could use software in email to distribute malware and they could take remote access to your computers and steal your information. Whereas before they'd have to get in your building. So it was a fundamentally new vulnerability Funny talking about learning from failures. Message Labs was like 90% off plan in year <laughs> one. So, you know, it was an amazing strategy, completely well-crafted and executed, but it just didn't work. And that was more of a distribution problem. Um, uh, we were in, fully indirect and we needed to change that and go direct with indirect fulfillment without going into the technicalities of that. But fast forward eight years, we got to 150 million of subscription, 20,000 corporate, 650 people, and um you know we sold that in 2008 to semantic the security you know the listed security business in the us and and uh and uh yeah we announced notion the next day and really it was a thesis that you know um if, if you look at b2b software more generally one percent of the time was like um uh software that was built and resided on the internet so mm. what was what was classically SaaS. And we thought it would be 50%. So it was a sort of mega trend that was going to happen in our lifetime. And so all the money that was going to software, hardware, and system integrators, you know, trillions of spend was going to move from that form factor into the sort of SaaS form factor. And that was the quantum shift that we wanted to be at the forefront. And so, you know, that was the initial thesis for Notion. $30 million of our own money was fund one. And, you know, now we're on fund five with two ops funds. So it's about a billion under management, a team of 30, Amazing. about 200 companies in there. We make an, we, we make an investment pretty much every week at the sort of pre-seed and seed stage. But, mm. you know, vast majority of our money is invested at series A, mm. B, business software in, in Europe. And so it's been, you know, another big ride for us. That's a sort of 15 year journey. And, mm. um, 
And all the time you're dealing with these business problems. You're dealing with business problems, strategy issues, complexity issues. You're dealing with people challenges. And so, you know, trying to meet more and more people that are, you know, on a mission to solve some of those problems for founders is, you know, it's just a core part of what it is that we do. Yeah. And um, so, um, but I agree with Richard, you know, we and yourself, we we tend to learn as people far more about uh, uh, ourselves and the people around us and the businesses that we've got in in the in the in times of trouble, right? You know, when we're trying to figure our way out of the challenges than than it is when everything's going um, smoothly. You know, generally mm. speaking, as a person, I'm very optimistic, but I tend to think that when everything's going so well, I need to look at yeah. how do I now reinvent the company to sort of like catch the next wave. Um, uh, before what we're doing today kind of runs out of its um, kind of growth efficiency. And um, so, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. No, brilliant. I want to go back to Richard and we'll keep, we'll keep swapping. Mm. Um, mm. So, you know, you wrote, you've written this book and of course I, I want everyone to go buy it and we'll put out the mm. link and uh, the website on our, on our show. But here I want to start firstly with uh, playing devil's advocate for a moment. That's mm. okay. So, there are many chapters in this book that, of course, if any of us have been reading for the last 25 or 30 years, there is a lot of material that you would see in this book that you'd see, at least in terms of the subtitles or the, the headings, in other mm. books too, right? You know that. Mm. And in, in, including MBAs, you know, like people who study go on the Harvard courses or do the MBAs, they've got, they've got you know, modules after modules on venture building and mm. startup building and mindset of the founder and the case studies and so on and so forth. So we've mm. all been through this. But I even as a founder, I keep I just I need to ask you this question. Why do we need to keep repeating this again and again? Why <laughs> are we making these mistakes again and again? And I have a view, but I want your you you both to tell me why from a VC standpoint, because you see it now, Chris. So you you have these people coming pitching to you. You've got 200 companies in, in your portfolio. The deal flow must be insane. You've seen God knows how many thousands. And then, of course, you're advising them, Richard, right? You're mm -hmm. guiding them. You're saying, hey, don't do this. Do this. I'm your coach. I'm your guide. I'm your mentor. Mm -hmm. So why do we keep making the same mistakes again and again? Surely when you fuck up at some point, you say, I'm never going to do this again, or you read about it somewhere. What, what's the issue here? Well, what's going on? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, I, I think I'll stop writing and banging on about it, um, which I do <laughs> every day with the organizations that we that we work with. And we work yeah. with, I don't know, nine or 10 different businesses concurrently. Yeah. Um, the day that software founders put on their website the why about their software and not the what and the how, so I, you know, I don't know what the maths is, and you can you can read all sorts of psychological studies, but you've probably got about twenty to thirty seconds for a potential customer to land on your website mm. and either go, I've no idea what this does, it doesn't resonate with me, and move on, or wow, this absolutely this is this is me. This is a this is a business that sells products to people like me. Um, and every day, I mean, I don't think in twenty twenty three I'm yet to land on a website. Um, when we started working with a company, that tells me why somebody should carry on reading and click to the next page or scroll mm. down. Mm. All I read is what it is that you do and how it is that you do it. So using ALI, AI and large language models and and you know all, all the rest of it mm. to um, to make your uh, yeah I, I don't want to quote anybody because you know mm. for fear of embarrassment but but I, I'm just going great I know what I know what you do. There's a lot of the what and none of the so what. 
you know so so the analogy i would use is if you owned a hotel right and and you were about to open on saturday and it was friday afternoon and the fire inspectors come around to make sure everything's working okay and they tell you that your fire extinguishers are, aren't working yeah and you, you can't open because you're not insured you've got no fire extinguishers working right uh, and i had a website that says same day fire extinguisher you know, fire extinguisher delivery. The moment the person lands on that site, they're going, bang, that's me. I'm a, I'm a hotel owner. These people sell fire extinguishers. They can get it to me in one day. That's, I'm, I'm now going to engage. Hmm. The gap between that and, and the way that we, including ourselves, and we always write this in the book, we made exactly the same mistakes, where you're asking people who land on your website to use, literally use calories, burn calories, brain calories, trying to figure out what on earth it is that you do and how it is that you can help them so it's worth writing because and it's worth repeating um and, and i obviously you know we quote an awful lot of other books in there all of which are on my desk like the mum test that i pick up all the time um like uh, play bigger like building a story brand they're all on my desk all day every day um because they're the best in the business at explaining what they do but we do i think you know we keep making the same mistakes and, and I don't know whether, I think, you know, let me be slightly controversial here. I think World Book One in here, which is creating a pain statement visualization, is something that hasn't been covered before in the sense of getting a one-page visual, a PowerPoint slide that grows, mm -hmm. that details the pain that your customer is in and the various manifestations of that. And everyone knows about time and money because we've all done ROI before. You know, I'm mm -hmm. sure if you've done an MBA, you've done it. But actually... That isn't the most important pain because no one believes time and money anymore. No one believes ROI anymore. The one they do believe in is personal pain. The right. top of Maslow's hierarchy, the, the, the sitting in another one-to-one -one with two team members battling and arguing why legal are complaining to finance and finance are complaining to legal that they, they don't budget correctly and legal are saying, and you sit in this constant round of meetings. And along comes Richard saying, I've got a way that I can fix that so you never have to go to a meeting like that again. Both parties will be happy because we've got a nice got a nice flow of data now. And, and would you like to buy my software? And it's like, yeah, yeah, happy days. So I think that pain statement visualization mm. and I think mm. the testing of the thesis, the first two workbooks, mm. um, it's not unique thought because nothing's unique thought. But I think it's thought that, you know, uh, has anyone been banging the table in the last 10 years saying test your thesis, test your thesis, test your thesis? N not judging by the number of companies that don't make it because they suddenly discovered that they don't have product market fit because they suddenly discovered that the product that they were selling didn't map into the pain of the customers they wanted to sell to. Mm. So that's a long answer to your question, which is why do we keep making the same mistakes? Um, you know, it, it's a it's a brilliant question and probably could be debated for an hour on its own, but we are. I can tell you we absolutely are. And that's why people keep writing books about it because we've got to learn from the best. But I think it's much easier to learn from practitioners who've been in the field and seen right. it and done it and can tell you what hurts and, and what aches. And I have, you know, I have no greater respect for people like yourself, like Chris, myself, who've been founders, who've been, who failed, who failed mm. more than they, and there's a great quote from Roosevelt in the start of the book, you know, probably failed more than they've won, actually. But when they've won, they've won big and, they, and they've mm. won because they deserve to win. Um, and I think, I think too many books now are written by people who are sort of, outside the business yeah, outside the world looking in rather than people who've been in it looking out and saying this is what it really feels like and that's why i think and hope the book resonates because you'll be nodding all the way through it going oh, i recognize that i recognize that because it's written by people who've sat where you are
I had John Hegel on the show, the famous author, just mm. a few weeks back, and he wrote a book um, on fear. Now, mm. if I say that to you, are like, well, okay. I mean, we all know about fear. I mean, <laughs> you've had, there's thesis after thesis on fear. Freud was talking about, everyone's been talking about fear. Why the hell do you need to write? I said to him, listen, you're such a fantastic writer. You, you know, you founded Deloitte, you did this and you did that. So why are you writing another book on fear? Christ, I mean, we all know about fear. He said, because it's such a serious scared. problem, it's not going away. Yeah. It's still we're there. We're still scared. Yeah, yeah. We're still Universal. scared. Yeah. It's, we're yeah. still scared. So, Chris, tell yeah. me. So, it's you, you, your perspective, you know, outside in in a way. I mean, you're a founder. You get it. You know, been around the block. But you see a lot of founders coming to you pitching for money, right? And that's so. So, tell me what your what's your perspective on this? Why does it keep happening again and again? There's got to be some. There's got to be something to do with psychology, or you might say, no, Af, it's only this segment. Tell me what you're saying. What are the patterns you're seeing? It's actually it's such a good topic. Um, mm. So we have this thing at Notion where we talk about like because obviously we've got quite a large portfolio and we work heavily. Yeah. We build we we build a roster of practitioners to yeah. help our founders in order to give them you know uh, you know a better opportunity to be successful. Mostly where they kind of peer to peer network with each other. That's probably the most powerful because you know many founders are solving this company's problems. They solved them the year before, so they they're really good. They're really good. Uh, mm. Uh, you know, coach or or counterparty for them to you know kick around the problems or the ideas that they that they've got. So um, th there's one phrase that we've got, which is like, you know, you want to work with founders that are solving the problems that have never been solved before. Not all of the problems that have been solved many times before. So partly with our um, value added platform team, you know, we're trying to make available, yeah. you know, the kind of the current routines that you would you would follow. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, I mean, I can talk to it really much more clearly in terms of investor readiness, right? Because um, investor readiness is um, is super interesting because you know a lot of founders are investing a hell of a lot of time and burning the money and uh, their valuable time on you know pitching to to, mm. to investors. And what's really interesting is that you know sometimes they kind of don't understand the audience, mm. you know. Mm. And what I mean by that is there's a common situation that we get frustrated by for the founder that's pitching to us right is you know um is they're spending a lot of time explaining the business mm. you know explaining the product if you see what i mean mm. but the investor audience actually is a financial audience that's think thinking what well, how do i or anyone make a huge amount of money investing in this company these people this problem this market shift that's going to have some mm. quantum wave that's going to move from mm. kind of where it is today to some sort of paradigm that this um, company, this founder, this vendor is going to be kind of at the center of the solution of the new way that this uh, industry is going to be run. And um, you kind of really need to sort of capture the attention of the people in the room, the audience, you know, within the first 120 seconds. And so, mm. you know, mm. um, you know, so being, you know, organizing your information in such a way, which is around the reason to listen, is sort of almost fundamental at the beginning of kind of any, any investor pitch. Mm. Uh, and it's uh, interesting how we can get 30 odd minutes in and we're still completely baffled as to um, why we're in a room with the people that are kind of pitching to us. And it's always, and again, it comes back to as a, me, myself as a, founder that's always got an entrepreneurial itch that needs scratching is to say like how do we how do we kind of help these 
founders get more investor ready mm. um, uh, because it's, you know, it's frustrating. It's incredibly expensive and frustrating for them. And it's mm. frustrating. It's frustrating for us. So, so um, that's an obvious way. And it really comes back to the point uh, that Rich was making. And th- the thing I think about Paul and Richard, which is they noodle more and more and more in an area, which is like, what is going on in the sort of mental monologue of people um uh that in the founder's case with a vc they're selling to you know so really understanding that audience if it's if it's your technology company and you believe that you're selling into an audience that is going to buy your software quite often the answer to how you um position that technology you know what you actually build why what's important to be built um is actually going on in the in a monologue of that that uh, um, uh, that buyer audience, the personas mm. of the buyer audience and their colleagues and stuff like that. And Richard used the phrase that we've used for many many years, which is like who's banging the table to solve what problems? Like who mm-hmm. who worries? Who goes home on the tube or the bus or in their car and they're thinking, do you know what? If we don't if we don't solve this, you know, we're fucked. Mm. Mm might get fired you know my Mm -hmm. job risk and you know and uh, you know i'm having sleepless nights it's spending the time to understand what is going on in that Mm -hmm. inner monologue of these personas and these buyers and their colleagues if you see what i mean Mm -hmm. gives you the insight of the priorities and the weighting and then so on and so forth that they they have and if you start to then build up that picture you become almost like, you know, the founder stroke startup that has real ESP mm. about what is going on into the market that you're selling into, mm. you know, genuinely like an innate understanding on, you know, what is the sort of real kind of tempo of the things that they really, really, you can go and get the um, uh, Gartner reports and stuff like that. And you can certainly mm. add those into your investment deck but the mm. power genuinely is going to be in the mind of the people that are buying your software, influencing the purchasing of that software, going to be using your software and stuff like that. And it's amazing if you talk to them in the right kind of way is what they uh, reveal to you. Then, of course, once you've got that, you've then got to have the relationship between, you know, the creative people and the builders to say, OK, this is the best way. How are we going to solve this problem in a kind of a unique way? Mm-hmm. Um, how are we going to surface our technology for maybe different verticals or different segments? How are we going to price that? Are we going to price that to great game market share? Or are we going to price that for value to extract more value per sale? And so, right. so there's a whole new set of kind of trade-offs uh, that uh, you might need to make. Now, it's far better to be able to make those trade-offs once you understand the mind of the buyers and the influencers and the users. And I think what happens is um, we're quite often too too in a rush to prove our mm. thesis. Mm. You know, we're gonna we're never gonna give up, and we're gonna keep banging yeah. that nail on that hammer, <laughs> and we're gonna keep banging that nail. And I know I'm right, and the next person's gonna mm. say yes, and uh, and my salespeople can't sell, and my product I need to change my product person, and my marketing mm. people don't know how to generate leads and stuff like that. But actually, you know um it's taking a step back like you know i go 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 a little bit slower to go a lot faster yeah and it's really understanding those the 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 the, the, what's going on in that inner monologue the bit and some people are you know 
needs a little bit of teasing out of them because there's some, there's inhibitions that exist within mm, the absolutely yeah. and you need you need you need that intuition i mean if you take one thing away from reading this book chris has just absolutely nailed it you have to live a life and see the world out of the eyes of your buying persona what is their daily life like what meetings are they going to mm-hmm. have they just been instructed by their ceo to get rid of software not bring any more software in We've got too much software because plenty of businesses are now rationalizing what they're doing and getting rid of it, right? So that's a massive headwind you've got. You've got the massive headwind of inertia, the fact that we can't be bothered to change. We can't, you know, mm. this has to be, and going back to my analogy of the of the hotel and the and the, and the uh, fire extinguishers, you know, you have to understand that hotelier's pain is he has to solve this problem quickly, number one, or number two, he is flying in the face of a regulator, in this case, the police or the authorities that won't allow him or her to open the hotel, right? Two beautiful bits of pain. They need to sort it and sort it fast. And if they don't, they're going to face the, the wrath of the regulator, right? So your website needs to say, we have the answer and we can deliver it. We can deliver it right now. Mm-hmm. So the longer you spend thinking, breathing, living like the executive that you are trying to get 20, 30, 40, 100, 150, 200,000 pounds a year off, if you don't spend time really understanding their personal pain, mm-hmm. not the money and the time, we've all done our own way, their personal pain, if you can find your solution, your software solution within their own objectives, their own OKRs for the year, then you really are onto something fantastic. Because if the CEO has said, I need you to sort this process. Why are we a multi-million pound business still this shit at, run, at running this process? Why why aren't we better at this? Why mm. you know yeah. we 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 we're moving billions of pounds worth of cars around the world, mm. and yet we're using spreadsheets to to mm. trade. Why are we so bad at this? Sort it out, would you? And mm. therefore, you're the person that's able to create a software system that integrates quick to value, gets rid of the spreadsheets, gives them a dashboard. Give, give that persona, here's, here's a money shot, give that persona something to present at the next board meeting they go to, saying, this is how we used to do it, this is how we now do it. And imagine that wave of personal pride and personal you know, ambition, all those ambitions being fulfilled that your buying persona now feels. So you know, it, it, it's an absolute game changer. And I don't think anyone's written a book about that. Yeah, just, just, on, just on that, just on that. You know, for the audience that are listening, it's that thing that, um, you know, you, you, it's just, just to reflect and say, you know, are we are we talking at our customers? You know, are we broadcasting? Our, or, you know, so are we over talking or are we over listening? Mm-hmm. And I think you've got to have those feedback loops and be able to listen to customers. And, you know, once you've done and it's it's a it's compounding and it's continuous and compounding. Yeah. Mm. So it's not something you do once in a while. You do your little survey and then someone slightly more junior serves up the results, if you see what I mean. Mm. It's something where you take personal leadership and it's about asking questions in the customer and that you're listening and truly listening and thinking through the ramifications. And what happens then is you get huge amounts. Once you do reposition the product into the right way, um, those delighted customers, whether they're browsing and go, oh my God, this is just what I'm looking for. Right. Or whether mm. they're buying it and they're using it in anger. Then you get this huge other second effect, which is word of mouth marketing. Mm. And when you genuinely buy a technology that really solves the 
acute problem that you've got that's a high priority for you. You maybe you've got promoted because you've bought the technology, mm. right? And the company's benefited from the payoff of that technology. Mm. Is you're going to tell everyone about it, you mm. know? And yeah. that message like we we estimated that I think about a third of our bookings came from word of mouth. Incredibly mm. high value, cheap, mm. you know, forms of CAC, right? And mm. um, and um, but it all comes from kind of listening, listening to the, to mm. the audience. Mm. Mm. There's a WhatsApp group, isn't there, that exists between customers. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but let's say you're selling to I don't know, FDs or HR directors or whatever. Um, what you need to know that on their phone, there's a WhatsApp group. And on that WhatsApp group is other fellow colleagues. Can you hear me? Sorry. Yeah, yeah. I know Sorry. where this is on going because I've got on one that myself. WhatsApp group is yeah, on that WhatsApp group are 10, 12, 15, 20 other people mm-hmm. who are all in the same industry, mm-hmm. who are all colleagues. They've met at a conference, they they they're part of the same national association of human resources professionals or whatever it's called. They all meet for a beer once a quarter, once every six months. That is the WhatsApp group you need to get into. I'm not saying you need to be allowed to join it, although that would be lovely, but they need to put a link, what we call dark social, where they sh- they share a link to a product, a platform, or an ebook or a user group. That is the nirvana. Get into that WhatsApp group because once you've solved it for your first customer and they've got promoted or they've had the credit, one of them will say, "What happened to your? I, I saw you've been pushed up to yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I solved this problem. Oh, how did you solve it? Because we've got that problem because they're all they're all do the same job. They've all got the same problem. How do you do it? Oh, I use these guys. Are they any good? Yeah. Can you trust them? Oh, they're great. Yeah, you should meet Rich. Good lad. He'll help you out. Da, da, da. Oh, do you want me to put in? No, no, no. Oh. That's it. Now you're you're into it. Why? Because you took the time to empathize, to care, to genuinely care about the challenges and the problems that your first customer had. You know, back, go back to that Volkswagen story. He had his team moaning at him every month that I've got to go through the spreadsheets of 1,100 employees and weed out Rich? the joiners. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. We, yeah, weed out, weed out the joiners. But you know, bring in the bring in. Sorry, add in the joiners. Weed out the leavers. It's like deleting names in a phone book. You know, when yeah. people, die. you know, that was their problem. Every month they had mm. this sudden dread of having to solve this problem. So we fixed his problem in his in this case. Because we gave him a bit of software, which he could give to his team, which meant they no longer had to do that anymore. Yeah. And that was the that was the absolute nirvana of yeah. that product. Yeah. I yeah. want to come, I, this is beautiful. And I want to come to another point, which is again, a slightly controversial point, which is uh, to do with whether we need salespeople at all. Mm-hmm. And the definition of salespeople, which has now changed. I mean, I you talked about Gartner. I used to run the European arm of Gartner before I became a startup guy. And um, without talking too much about them and how we train salespeople, one of the big things was executive presence in those days, still is, and it's still a problem because it's very hard to teach it. And uh, you just have to be patient and persist and fail a lot. And then finally, you know, you've got the scars and then you become a little bit more refined and you listen a little bit more and you're less jumpy and impulsive. Um the surveys that I see out there, and it's been going on for the last three to five years, and I'm sure you've seen all the numerous surveys from McKinsey, Gartner, and various other, even Salesforce, actually. Many of them suggest that buyers, who, by the way, post-COVID, as you know, have changed. Yeah. They've, they've jumped 
leaps and bounds in terms of their ability to buy. It's not like the yeah. old school days, you know, you could dupe them and, you know, you mm. could down, dine them. Now, you know, the supply chain officer, the HR leader, they're actually kind of techies. Mm. They get it. Because technology has been translated to them. The old days of the IT director and then the chief information officer where you could sort of, you know, code your way through it and say, well, it's way too too technical for me. That's Mm. gone. You know, I remember Mm. from my Fujitsu days years ago, that's what it was. Like, it's just too technical. No, just just tell me just the business stuff, please. Now, Mm. the same buyers have done their homework, got their certifications. Heck, some people are getting GPT certifications these days. Mm. They can talk the talk and they do understand it because they've got, Mm. I mean, they're smart people. Sales and their feedback is salespeople are irritating. Salespeople mm-hmm. are pushy, irritating, waste of my time until mm-hmm. the salesperson can stop asking me journalistic questions. Because for Christ's sake, I speak to 50 of you all day long. Mm-hmm. It's either mm-hmm. the SAP guy, the Oracle guy, Salesforce guy, whatever. Mm-hmm. But the ones who are semi-analysts, the ones who have experience, who understand industries, who have credibility, gravitas, can use data, uh, yep. can whiteboard. Those yeah. are they're not the salespeople anymore. No. And so no. I would argue, and we could we could call them whatever you want. Tell yeah. me a bit about your experience now, both sides. Maybe Chris, you start. Uh, you know, in terms of going to market and actually solving the problem, or getting to the visceral pain, or um, you know, the analogy of the the the, the fire hose example, uh, example mm-hmm. you gave earlier, or even what Volkswagen did with you. you mm-hmm. That was a, I would argue you were a different. It was a different era of selling. Mm-hmm. Mm, 19 yeah. in the mid 90s a different type of selling you're different people different country mm. different type of selling different product your your chasm was different today mm. the buyer rich really seriously have you got someone who can i talk yeah, to someone he knows else what about. Yeah, he knows yeah, what they're yeah. talking about how what do we do with that what's your observation chris around that and then i'll come to you rich mm. well i think i think there's a there's a couple of things and it is it is evolving and it needs to evolve quite quickly for a few reasons so um i um Back at back in the nineties, yeah, I was doing a lot of uh, stuff in financial information related to demographic trends, and so we were talking at the time about the demographic time bomb, right? Right, and we're obviously going to hear about the demographic time bomb a lot more right now because it's basically yeah. the issue with the um, the amount of people that are of working age in work versus the amount of babies that are being had at any one given time, right? And so the UK tipping point is 2025. Germany hit that tipping point. So Germany, for example, loses 700,000 people off German payroll mm. per year for the next decade. I mean, it's just quite phenomenal. It is. And that's retirees outstripping um, people that are, you know, graduating, you know, out of school university. So there's a there's an inherent problem that's a macro, which is there's just not enough people. You know, and you'll you'll see that in the world in terms of open requirements for jobs, not enough truck drivers and so on and nurses and so on and so forth. So that's one challenge that t- will get spoken about a lot more. The other thing is, like you say, educated buyers and the availability of information. Mm. Um, and so I tend to think about it in in in, uh, in in like a spectrum. So if you've got a PLG motion, where basically all of the thought process of buying is done digitally beforehand and the product... Sorry, what's PLG for everyone? Product-led So the product-led growth type products that you buy online and the and you, and you learn how to use the software intuitively or through the utilization of the software 
typically for small businesses or smaller problems when what we call you have a, a rogue buyer in the in the enterprise. So someone's allowed to put it on their company credit card and start mm. using it like type form. Um, if you go up to sort of more enterprise, then, you know, you tend to think that enterprise sales motions really, really work in great, uh, at great scale. Some people think there is a threshold at 20,000 annualized contract value, but genuinely you need to get to 50 and 60,000 of contract value. And what happens with the enterprise is it's far, it becomes far less about the product that you're buying and it becomes the uh, non-product related issues of that company, you know, ingesting that product into mm. their tech stack, into their company and getting use from it. So it feels a little bit more like, oh, doesn't that sound like old software? And the, it is, but, you know, in old software, the the, the, the the money that you would spend on the non-product related requirements would be significantly larger. And so, you know, a vendor needs to create infrastructure from a sales go-to-market and support perspective to support different ways within which uh, markets that the product is pointed at, but also yeah. how those products are consumed and used. Um, and so, you know, the larger the organization that you're selling to, the more that they need handholding and support, both in terms of how to buy, how to enable that technology, how to use that technology. Smaller companies, they clearly don't have that budget. And so the innovation has been things like product-led growth, mm -hmm. That means that those technologies can scale very, very, very rare. But there's this other macro point that, you know, as an investor, I, I genuinely want to involve in, invest in companies that don't need a lot of people, right? Mm -hmm. um, because I think people are the thing that's in short supply in certain in certain markets. And I've got um, you know, I have a, a couple of bets that are that are predicated purely on the on the lack of supply of talent side, for example, because of that kind of macro issue. Mm -hmm. Um so you know. It's how does the business buy? How does the business procure? You know, how does it embed your technology? You know, that informs you as to sort of how much you get to spend on CAC and how much um, you, you, you're you able to invest in both marketing and sales. And obviously the smaller the ACV. Now, we used to think of product-led growth down at 3,000 and below average order value. But because of the point that you're making, those average order values are starting to creep up because... Right. People are more sophisticated as buyers. There is more information that's available. And so this very, very highly efficient product-led way that you can distribute is starting to be, pick up increasingly larger average order values. So one question. Still add in. Word of mouth is still that's that 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 that's the that's killer. the ball game. Yeah. That's the ball game. One, one quick question. Sorry, Rich, but one quick question before you go. So the um go to market in terms of whether you're going to sell direct into the buyer, the HR leader, the CIO, whoever, whomever it may be, or distributor. So, you know, you use Salesforce as your distribution arm because they've, or Microsoft's sort of sales program where they've got, they do the heavy lifting. You just make sure they understand your product well enough and you can differentiate. So you put all your eggs in selling into the distributor. Tell me a little bit about that. Are you seeing any shifts there? Because, I mean, the headache of building a sales force, quota management, hiring, firing, it's not everyone's ballgame, to your point. Are you seeing any shifts and trends trends there? Yeah, not really. I, 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 don't th I don't think we're seeing any sort of major trends that haven't been around for a while. I mean, indirect, as in indirect distribution, Yeah. truthfully, you know, if you look at the history of software, People invented software to go and sell to very, very large organizations. That's that's kind of where it started. And so therefore distribution came about, which is like 
oh, what can we do to sell to other people, right? Other countries and stuff like that. And that's how that market. Then you moved into sort of like, well, actually all technology starts to need to be interconnected. So you had these complex OEM relationships where two vendors would connect their technology together and one might be the bigger party. So you would distribute through uh, the bigger party. Now, a lot of the sort of product-led growth motion has taken away that other because, you know, companies down there, they actually got different user requirements, different pricing that they can afford and so on and so forth. So mm-hmm. the technologies are now more, much more layered between who really wins in certain segments of the market. But I think in terms of, you know, direct versus indirect and all the kind of complex models that you get there, you know, it's still, you have to be really, really thoughtful um about um you know how you price your technology how you distribute your technology one thing i would say that is very common that we look out for is in early stage businesses sometimes the founders find it uncomfortable to ask to be paid for the technology that they've built so sometimes the reason why they're indirect is actually because Mm -hmm. You know, lower levels of competency in distribution, which is completely fine. I mean, maybe they're a brilliant engineer or a brilliant product person, but they're not so comfortable about distribution. And sometimes they have to kind of be honest with themselves to say, okay, maybe I do need to think about the lessons we were talking about earlier. Maybe I do really need to know and understand my customers. And so I can't hand that off to a completely alien organization yeah. or an alien. You can't outsource an, it. You can't outsource no, it. Yeah. Outsource it, right? So you have to sort of be honest with yourself. Yeah. yeah. And I would go back to saying, hey, look, it's okay to go slow to go to go faster, bigger later, if you see mm. what I mean. Mm. And think about how you invest some time or have some people around you that can kind of help you with that kind of distribution problem. Yeah, got it. Thank you. Rich, you were saying. Well, I was just going to say two things, really. I mean, one was going back to Gartner in September 2020, um, as you can find on page 137 of our book. Um, <laughs> Gartner released uh, Gartner released the Future of Sales 2025 paper, and it came out just in the middle of lockdown. And that's why I remember it was one of the papers that, A, I read all the way through because some of them were pretty heavy lifting. But, B, it resonated with me more than any other paper that's ever come out. And their thesis which I'm sure is right. And look, it's not 2025 yet. We've got about 14 months to get our ducks in a row. But it's by 2025, they predicted that 80% of all B2B sales interactions between suppliers and buyers will occur in digital channels. Right. Um, now, just think about that for a moment. They'll happen digitally, not you know through a, a salesperson. And they go on to say that actually, the habit today is that 80 to 90% of people would like to do 80 to 90% of their learning journey on your website, not speaking to a salesperson who they, who, as you say, may be unqualified, not know the product well enough. Um, and, and they get found out very, very quickly. You know, when that guy in the, in the, in the cafe at Volkswagen group in 1999 said, you're selling your product the wrong way around, right? Wikipedia didn't exist. Right. So back in those days, we didn't spend, dozens and dozens of hours a day staring at our phone doing our own research right mm-hmm. reading wikipedia reading hotel reviews reading trust pilot reading TripAdvisor. you know I, I don't know about your 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 other halves but my other half will research the bejesus out of every location we're ever going to before we go that simply wasn't possible 15 months yeah. ago yeah. now if you're selling software in a b2b space and you think that you're customers aren't researching the bejesus out of your space 
and your market and do they understand they know they've got a problem right mm -hmm. and they're trying to fix it but mm -hmm. you know that search term that used to be a sort of click through now is very very important right mm -hmm. because they're saying you know i can't get my goods to market fast enough right yeah. up comes your solution you've got about 20 to 30 seconds as, as i said before to to make that buyer see your site and empathize or understand that you empathize with their pain that you've done it for others that you're accessible that your pricing's on there so they can qualify themselves in and we can do a whole nother podcast on pricing and, and packaging but they can price themselves into what they're doing so the question that you originally asked was you know what's the future of sales well if the market doesn't want it because they don't like salespeople, number one. And number two, the, those that know at Gartner are telling you that customers want to research on your website rather than by talking to a salesperson and may only contact sales to do dot the I's and cross the T's, yeah? Then it puts the pressure even more on your website, which, which I know sounds a bit boring and a bit 1990s, right? But there are too many terrible websites out there that mm. don't handle the objections, that don't handle the questions. You know what the objections are because your salespeople hear them all the time. Those objections need to be on your website. So when your customers, and the answers, of course, so when your customers land on the site, that all the questions which we know in their internal dialogue are going on in their head are answered on that site. Mm. So I just think that's, I just think that's, that's, yeah, a really fascinating observation. The world has changed. The world does its own research. Are we ready for it? Yeah, yeah, you're bang on. And I have, I have to say, from a talent perspective, you think about sales jobs. And again, I'm happy to get like your big predictions mm. on it. You don't need we don't need evidence or data to back it up. It's fine. Just your your moonshots or your views. But if you think five to ten years out, with without without the Gartner report, you know, and I've read that report of course extensively. And there are other reports too. You know, there are other reports that are supporting and supplementing that, albeit they're deviating in some ways. But the yeah. general consensus is that people don't want to buy from human beings anymore. It's yeah. way easier when when the complexity of the sale is mid to low. When it's high complexity, which is what Chris was talking about, yeah, absolutely, you need the face-to-face -face contact. You just do. We, we're not at that stage where AI or, you know, the singularity is here and I'm a robot and I'm doing my podcast. We're not at that stage. Thankfully, I'll be dead and gone by then, hopefully. Mm. Um, should people aspire to be in sales jobs coming out of university then? Well, it's funny because... Um... You know everything you just said is absolutely right, and then I just started. I just started thinking, yeah, but people still like to build. You know, people still like to buy from people, and mm -hmm. and every time you're in a call queue, you know, waiting for your bank or your, you know, there's like eighteen different options and buttons you can press, and there's not button number ninety, which is I just want to speak to a human, because yeah. you know, behind eating and drinking and oxygen, a human's greatest need is to be understood. That that is that is a fact you know you ask any psychologist that you know they they behind the the basics of staying alive you know we have this passionate desire to be listened to and to be empathized with and to be understood whatever our whatever our background and it's going to be a very 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 long time before you know ai and large language models can 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 empathize but they may never be able to empathize with it so i still think there is a place to for people to buy from people but if I can sound a bit like a sort of, you know, aged and probably dead cricket commentator from years ago, you know, it, it was a lot tougher in our day, uh, and it and it was like and it, and if you don't believe me, and I cover this in the book, you know, we had to make forty cold calls a day to make one appointment, and it was horrible and it was brutal, 
And I mean, you know, any of those practices today would end up with the people that ran that company in court, you know, for HR mm. reasons. But it was a different world. And forget all of, of that. What it taught us was the discipline of hard work and and reaching out multiple, the grind, right. the absolute grind to get yeah. your business off the ground. A founder will get it, right? Because they put their blood and their sweat and their mum's money into this mm. business, right? There's nothing more focusing on your mind than the fact it's your mum's money in here now. Mm. So they'll be used to the grind. And if I had one uh, moan as a, you know, obviously more than well, middle-aged human being right now, is that salespeople today have got no idea how difficult it is to hit a number and how much work it is required yeah. to do that, right? How many hours does Roger Federer and Novak Djokovic pra practice tennis? How many hours does sportsmen practice their skills? Compare that to how many hours do the best salespeople spend practicing their skills? And there's no, there's no, you know, there's no comparison. So, I, I think there'll always be a pace for humans. If, 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 we, if our thesis is you need to empathize more with your clients, you're going to need a human to empathize that. But stack the odds in your favor by making sure you can have that conversation or you earn that conversation by having a website that actually explains the why and feels like a, a, a warm bath rather than the sort of cold, bland granite blocks that we look at most of the time. So I don't think that answers the question. I don't think anyone could know. But do I think there'll always be a place for great empathetic salesmen? Yes, I do. I really and do. I don't, and I don't believe so much in forecasters. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, yeah. I think, yeah. Uh, I think there is going to be a place for some time, and I think the larger the organisations, to summarise earlier, you know, they don't need necessarily support in deciding that you're on the short list of one or two vendors, but they need all of the non-product related services that enable them to consume the technology. So the bigger that higher order value, right up to the tens of millions. And the, uh, 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 that some technologies are sold for, right? So, mm. yeah. Okay. One thing I would say, Af, just one more thought on this. Yeah, sure. Is the better your value proposition, the less bench strength you need in your sales team. Yeah. Right. And the Fair worse point. your value proposition, the more strength you need in it. Right. And if you ha have what happens to an awful lot of founders, where you have a really poor value prop and a really poor salesperson, it ends up in disaster. Right. Mm. But if you don't have, you know, a sharp enough nail that you're banging into the into the piece of wood through your value prop. You need a bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger hammer to to, to whack it in, and you need to hit it over and over again. So, I, I can't remember what the quote is. I've been trying to think for it the last hour, but it was Einstein or someone who said, "If I was given ten minutes to think of a thing, I'd spend nine minutes thinking of the." So, if I had ten minutes, I'd spend nine minutes thinking about my value prop than I would about anything else. Because if you get that bang on, you don't need A, a lot of salespeople, and B, you don't need great salespeople. You just need, you know, bright and intelligent ones. Because if your value prop's right, they'll be order-taking. Yeah. yeah. The inbound will be coming. They're just order-taking. They're not having to sell. Yeah, fair point. Right, my final question, because I know we're running out of time, and I could speak to you guys for hours, and we should. <laughs> we should meet again, mm. for sure. Mm. Uh, because we're scratching this. I mean, there's a lot here, but we're scratching mm. the surface. And we're talking about issues that are pertinent, indirect mm. issues that are pertinent mm. to this as well. I guess the next version of the book as well. My final question, and you can respond back, you know, um, the way you, you want. Just 30 seconds. I'll start with Chris. So mm. the, here's the framing. The framing is this. Generative AI is amazing and it's exciting. And it's going to create a whole new uh, you know, group of startups, a whole new generation of very exciting 
people who will use that technology for the betterment of their lives, society, business, and so on. The barriers to entry, though, with this technology, unlike the old days where this is my IP, I've got it patented, no one can screw with me now, that sort of stuff. I remember even with my startup, we were like obsessed with trying to get a patent. It wasn't very valuable, but still we were obsessed with it at that point because that's what everyone said we should do, just get a patent registered somehow. In today's world, where you know you're going to see some exciting companies being born, but the unit economics, because barriers to entry are so much lower, the unit economics have to be different. They have to be different. Like, you know, yeah. you could have 10 startups in using NLP doing translation, another 10 doing the deep fake, you know, visual marketing uh, mm. gig, another another bunch doing proposal writing, another bunch doing, you know, you, you name it. And it's it's actually getting easier, easier to easier and easier to do because large language models are like websites, in my opinion. Soon there will be billions of them, like websites. Mm. And mm. so we're like, oh, yeah, LLM is just like a website and they're floating around and we're feeding data from it. Given that's the context, given that's the context, Chris, from the point of view of investment, you put money into these companies. What will change for you? What will change for you? Because this is this is about SaaS. Is this will, will this still be evergreen? Or do you think that you need version two because it's not suitable for generative AI or or something else? Yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, the analysis that we've got in terms of the money that's going into generative AI startups is overwhelmingly. So more than 80% of all the money is coming from corporates. So not from venture capital. Interesting. Right? Okay. So phenomenal number. And um, offline, what I do is I'll, I'll I'll share with you some stats. Yeah. So big corporations are, you know, they want to be in this game and the quantum positive or negative to their business it's clearly, you know, huge. So they're, you know, they're having to uh, bet, bet, bet on the uh, uh, some of the ranch, if you see what I mean, and having a foothold uh, in this space. I think we tend to think about it at the moment from a portfolio perspective. We think about how are you using or looking at generative AI in terms of becoming incredibly more efficient, so less people mm. to do to to do more. So you know, if if, uh, if every product manager was able to invest all of the dollars that they needed into their product roadmap, everyone would run out of money pretty quick, right? So it's like, okay, knowing what we now know, can you build software, you know, um, faster um, with uh, supported engineers and co-pilots and so on and so forth than you ever, and can you embed it within the product? And those two things are kind of somewhat, somewhat different, if you see what I mean. At Notion, we also think, you know, really what it will be is over in about five years time is that just like we had web, you know, we're offline to web. We went to mobile. Yeah. Then you know there is there is a sort of generative AI, AI wave where it's going to be incumbent and in kind of within every company in terms of the way that they use it for their business models. Um, and so you know it's it's multifaceted in many ways. And mm. um, so, but we, you know we need to see it in a B two B world how it is kind of sits within um, the workflows of what people do or the jobs of work that need to get done. And it's mm. done within a fully kind of integrated working way rather than in the kind of consumer format that it's kind of, that it, that it's used in the way today. One of the big things that we think from an investment side is the other side of the coin is fraud. You know, did the ability to um, uh, uh, fraudulently, you know, clone or take uh, uh, um, uh, um, take, uh, uh um, uh, con people out of certain situations, you know, where you've got to double authenticate the fact that you're actually talking to your own mother right. um, 
Right. Those are the sorts of things about the sort of risk of the internet, which we think are going to be super interesting. So, um, mm. yeah, you know, it's going to have a it's going to have a material effect in in kind of many ways. Mm, fabulous. Yeah. That's very, very good. Thank you. And over to you, Rich. You know, well, we're working on? with two companies right now who are both um, using large language models, one in recruitment and the other, weirdly enough, in oil and gas. You couldn't get more um, spit apart than that. Um, my contention is, with a massive caveat, that about five years ago, this podcast would have been about the Internet of Things and what happened to that, right? So with a massive caveat, right, mm. is that my feeling about large language models is it's the how problems will be fixed, not the why problems will be fixed. Correct. It's the engine that will be able to solve loads of problems. But if you think either the onshore operations manager uh, of uh, BP in Aberdeen or the guy hanging off a rope on an oil rig uh, platform in the North Sea in an October storm give a monkeys about LLM and how it's helping them solve that problem, you, you, you'd, you'd be mad, right? That's the how it's done. It's the under-the-bonnet stuff. And I think it will make the world a whole lot better because we're now looking at them. Is Can a guy talk into a phone or a handset that's hanging off an oil rig and describe what the problem is and then the large language model can look up everything, the manuals, da, 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 da. so by the time he comes back off his ladder or whatever and gets into his office, the actual order is correct, the location is done, the right part is there, da, da, da. Will that make the world a better place? Absolutely, and solves their pain, and that's why they want it. But I think we should be very careful the next 12 to 24 months not to scare the crikey out of our customers who don't know what it is, yeah. don't know how it'll affect them, you know, if if it comes like on demand, right? On demand, you know, change the change the world. It happened, but mm. no one talks about it anymore because it's just standard, right? Right. So yeah. I think you know, large language models go from being novel. Let's have this conversation in three years' time to just being the way things are done in a, in a much much more efficient way. The pain, the customer pain, will still be there. It's just how it's done, not what, not why it's done. Mm. Got it. Beautiful. One thing I say, I'm just going to leave you with this, and I have a final question for you. One thing I say to a lot of the C-suite leaders that I meet not just in the UK, but in international markets in the US as well. They always ask me, you know, you were in the corporate and then you were with a consultancy and you did this and you sold IT and now you did your 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 startup gig and then you succeeded, you failed, you did and, and you're out now and you're building another one. Uh, what have you learned and what would you say to us? How do we like, how do we stay ahead of the curve? How do we avoid the black swan? All that sort of stuff, all this corporate terminology. And I say, listen, you could do a thousand different things, but go talk to people who are pragmatic. Go talk to people who've, who've um, walked on the, the hot charcoals, who have all the stars and the burns, go talk to people who are actually doing the stuff. If it's technical, go talk to the young people or whoever, whomever, it doesn't have to be young people, but the founders and the technical founders are building the large language models. Go talk to the people who've built companies and failed and come out and going, Christ, that was all horrible. Go talk to mm. the people who've succeeded. Please don't go to the consultants God forbid, and mm. you know, all the consultants are going to hate me, but it's true because I see the numbers going out. Million, hundreds of millions of dollars are spent on consulting, and you know which consultants I'm talking about, the usual suspects. Mm. And mm. the C-level executives continue to go to them. I mean, I saw a keynote presentation at at a conference recently was shared with me. I wasn't there, thankfully, of two very well-known people, analysts, talking about generative AI. And I just watched mm. it like this. I was thinking... No wonder corporations are failing because mm. you have X number of technology leaders in the room 
and it was the most basic presentation on generative AI, what you should have had is startups talking, discussing, talking about their pain points, saying, ah, you can't build it. Like, no, that's the why. Like this stuff with sales mm. leads and so on. Mm. And my final mm. recommendation to this person was, once in a month, twice in a month, organize a briefing. You've got so much money in your company. These guys have got loads of money. Organize a briefing, get free food, lunch, whatever the hell it is. Get founders of startups sitting around a table. You should be sitting in the middle. Ask them the most difficult questions. Tell them how they would solve your problems. That should be your MBA as a mm. c executive. Not mm. going and talking to the consultants uh, because mm. the consultants with the greatest respect just haven't got the practical experience as much as they no. watch trends. And I respect that. I respect that. But you still need the other thing, the pragmatic experience. You are, you both are as good as you are, let's be honest, because you've been in the trenches, mm. right? I mean, listen yeah, to yeah. this, the podcast, the last hour, which is refreshing. Mm. You were both talking about your personal experiences, your personal story, your personal pain, mm. your personal value, your personal mm. journey, because mm. you've done it. And that's why, you know, wow, Chris, how do you know this stuff is what someone would say to you. Oh, wow, Rich, because mm. you've done it. And I think I think that's the authenticity right. that comes with this, right? That that was that's what makes the book authentic is because yeah. when you read it, you know that we've been there, we weren't, we've got the Absolutely. scars and Absolutely. the bruises. You know, there's a great expression: those that can do and those that can't teach. And and I think you know it's worth remembering that. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Go and find people whose face is, is actually covered in blood and sweat and tears. You've actually been in the arena, not people who are you know sitting in the audience. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's not textbook stuff. It, it's not. Mm. Apart from this. Apart from <laughs> this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, it's been a pleasure talking to you both. Thank you for giving me mm. your time. I really enjoyed it. I can't wait mm. to sit down and have maybe a glass or a bottle of wine with you to discuss life and other things. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. Chris, starting with you, how was the experience of the last hour? Uh, please, a few words to, to give us some encouragement and get us doing things better. Well, I'm I'm glad we've got you on the call because that holds us like you know keeps us you know uh, um, going. Otherwise, I'll be off the ranch somewhere talking about something completely random, which yeah, is what I'm famous yeah. for. So uh, yeah, it's been brilliant. I can't believe it's gone so quickly. So really appreciate uh, the invite. Really appreciate being able to tell some stories and share that with uh, with your audience. So thank you very much. A real pleasure. Yeah. Thank you for coming on the show. And Rich, what about yourself? Well, it's just been really enjoyed it. As you say, I mean, you, it, it, it's gone incredibly quickly and I hope it's valuable. I hope it's useful. You know, yeah. we we um, we set up Venture and we wrote the book, not because we kind of have to, but because we wanted to give back to an industry that's given us, you know, so many um, blessings. And, um, you know, we, we believe in paying it forward a huge amount. And that's why we spent so long doing free deck hacks, writing books that don't make us much margin and, and, uh, and, and coming on podcasts. You know, we'd love to help reach out if you'd like to know any more and um thank you very much for your time really really enjoyed it yeah yeah feelings are mutual you guys were amazing website what website do we go on or uh to 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 learn more or do we is it an amazon purchase well, the, the, yeah the books on amazon uh the go to market handbook for b2b SaaS leaders uh or if you look at venture v-e-n-c-h-a dot team uh okay. that's how you can get hold of us yeah okay and notion capital what's the website there chris notion.vc then I have included.vc as well. So, yeah. And so, you know, build a number of communities and, you know, those being two of the brands that um, like dominate most of my time. So. Incredible. Well, thank you so much. Real pleasure. I really appreciate it. Have a thank you. great week, great day. And I look forward to catching up with you face to face. Be well. Thanks, Ed. Let's be with you. Cheers, mate. Cheers, mate.